Hey, welcome back to the program. What's going on with the natural world? It is possibly at a tipping point. You start thinking about what happened with that heat dome in the British Columbia over the western portion of western Canada and the mass die-off that we saw of marine of marine life because of it. And we've talked about this on this radio program before about the impact on all kinds of different species, whether we're talking about birds and whether we're talking about bugs, the gypsy moth uh, invasion that we really had, again, possibly another record-setting year in the province of Ontario. And, of course, we have other things. As, as some species are clearly dying off because of climate change, others, others are on the way in, and it's a big problem when we start talking about invasive species, and there is no bigger concern, perhaps, when it comes to the Great Lakes and where we live, than Asian carp. Andrew Reeves is an environmental journalist and an author of the book Overrun, Dispatches from the Asian Carp Crisis. And welcome back to the program, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. What, what is the latest on, on Asian carp since your, your book's come out? What's the latest info we have? Well, as it stands right now, the fish haven't actually progressed much further towards Lake Michigan and the Illinois River. Um, some of the, the barriers that we've been putting in place, they were, they were hung up with a lot of procedural wrangling between different levels of government in the United States to be able to see who could find the money to be able to build uh, the barriers that they wanted just south of Chicago. But the funding all seems to be in place for that right now, which is really good to hear from a Great Lakes perspective. So they're starting construction on this, but as we know all too well, when you have many levels of government collaborating on a, a project, they tend to take a long time. So right now, one of the biggest things keeping the fish from getting much closer to the Great Lakes is actually paying commercial fishermen, as the state of Illinois is doing, who are continuing to fish down large populations. But here in Canada, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans at the federal level is still doing a lot of really good work in terms of monitoring for the fish and seeing if they're here. But so far, uh, the efforts we're putting in to keep them out of the Great Lakes seem to be working. In terms of efforts, uh, you, you mentioned the fishing, but can you describe also the, the use of, is it electrified fencing? What is it? Yeah. So initially in the Chicago River, uh, just south of Chicago in an industrial part of the city, um, in the early 2000s, maybe the late 1990s, uh, an electric barrier, sort of an electrified fish fence, was initially put in place to be able to keep another invasive species, brown goby, from making it from the Great Lakes into the Mississippi River system. But it took so long to put the electric fence in and to get it up and running that by the time they got it operational, the ground goby had actually already made it through from the Great Lakes into the Mississippi. And then they sort of repurposed this electric fence in order to be able to prevent Asian carp and other invasive fish species from making it from the Mississippi into the Great Lakes. And so that's a big part of what they're doing. But they've also been testing out other ways of, of deterring the fish in terms of sound barriers, which we know, if, you know because of how well sound travels through the water, that if you end up actually like putting in these like big bursts of sound along with the electric barrier, it tends to be enough to be able to deter any big fish who really just don't like the sound of it and will often turn around to, to move in the other direction. So between those things and some of the commercial fishing that we're doing, we're either hauling a lot of the fish out or we're sort of deflecting them 
from the Great Lakes, which from what we've seen over the past few years, has been really actually doing a lot of good. And so there's still a lot of money and a lot of time being spent on Asian carp deterrence, like with a lot of other invasive species. But so far, what we're doing seems to be working pretty effectively. It, does climate change play any factor in, in the expansion of Asian carp? I mean, I, I argue in the conclusion of Overrun that it absolutely does because you it, it manifests itself in, in different ways. So here in the Great Lakes Basin, we do have heat, but not in the same way we would see in, in you know Western North America. The big issue that we're going to be dealing with here will be the kind of rain that we've actually seen over the past few days, where instead of small amounts of rain spread out over many days, you have these storm warnings and torrential downpours. And so we know that the climate crisis is worsening the way in which rain is falling here. And so you have these massive amounts of rain that are falling on like very urbanized areas, which is taking, um, which, which is leading to a lot of problems with like uh, flooding and combined sewer overflows. So you have pollutants making their way into waterways. It's also taking a lot of fertilizer from agricultural fields. And this combination of high water and pollutants in the water and a lot of fertilizers from agriculture is actually creating not only the exact kind of flows that Asian carp really need to thrive and to breed effectively, but all of that fertilizer we're pulling off the farmer's fields is actually also then creating essentially a buffet for Asian carp, um, but leading to the kinds of like algal blooms that provides them with an abundant amount of food. So again, as I argue in, in the book, there's this importance of seeing all of these systems as connected because there is a pretty direct link between the, the spread and the breeding and you know the availability of food and other resources for Asian carp tied directly to the actions we are taking or we're not taking that are leading to the climate crisis. Your, your book is called Overrun Dispatches from the Asian Carp Crisis, and I think we just have to address naming convention here. Um, what what's your reaction to kind of a push, you know, whether it's gypsy moth or Asian carp to to rename um, these species? Um, I mean, so there's been a few states in the United States that have shied away from the term Asian carp and have referred to them as invasive carp. Part of that, I think, was just sensitivities. They they were named for because there's four fish within the Asian carp name um, or the Asian carp family um, that are all coming from the same region of, of China and northern Russia. They've gone through, so each individual species has their own name, but because they, they often work in tandem, we've called them Asian carp. The name has, has stuck in a lot of ways, largely here to differentiate them from common carp, which have been here for uh, well over 100 years. Um, it's an interesting thing because you have some people who want to rename them for, for racial sensitivity issues. You have others who want to rename them so that if people want to buy them, um, they are associated with a better sounding name than CARP. And so there's been a lot of rebranding efforts underway um, so that when people think about purchasing them for eating, um, that it doesn't have a lot of those negative connotations. So we've seen that over the past few decades, these different attempts to be able to rename them. Obviously, for very different reasons, I think they would point to something like Chilean sea bass, for example, as a way of taking a fish that was previously very unpopular um, and to turn it into something that people actually wanted to consume because it got a, a better and more acceptable name. I, I had largely, I largely understand that the the Asian carp, whether we're talking about grass carp, big head carp, silver carp, or black carp, we did that mm -hmm. little research there. 
um, that, <laughs> that whether we're talking about any number of those um, species, that they're largely inedible. Am I wrong? Well, you you can eat them. I often say that they will basically taste like whatever you want to season them with. And so I've I've had them four or five different ways. Um, needless to say, the the tastier ways were when they were either deep fried, um, <laughs> I mean, which is not surprising, or when they've been like mixed with another like binding agent and turned into a hamburger. So I've had them mixed with pumpkin, for example, and turned into like a pumpkin carp like little mini slider. Um, you can it can taste like anything you'd like them to. The challenge is often um, removing the bones. Um, we have a very different like cultural association with eating fish um, here in North America than in their native range. And so, for most North Americans, um, the idea of eating fish uh, bones don't really factor in. Um, and so, the because they're so difficult to remove the, the bones here, often people aren't really interested in eating them. And so, the economics of eating an invasive species have, haven't really played out yet, even though we're trying a number of different ways. Um, biologists and conservationists, for example, are also really concerned that as soon as you create a market around an invasive, you might incentivize other people to, to you know, capture them, to try and raise them in new areas. So you might unintentionally promote their spread by, by putting like an economic value to them. So that, there are many reasons why creating that kind of like food market around Asian carp would either be not simple uh, or um, perhaps like counterintuitive. Can we stop them from getting in the Great Lakes? I mean, we are. Um, I often liken it to uh, sea lamprey, for example. Sea lamprey are another invasive species that we have here in the Great Lakes system. We have managed to to control their populations, which 40, 50 years ago were out of control. Um, we've now reduced their, their uh, population by about 90 or so percent. Um, the challenge is, you know, we do this by, um, you know, like targeted, uh, like poisons that are released in the rivers and streams where they spawn. But that costs Canada and the United States about $25 million or so every single year to be able to not eradicate them, but just to, to keep their populations as, as being part of the Great Lakes ecosystem rather than a dominant feature. So, I mean, we're, we're really fearful of Asian carp in the Great Lakes because silver and big head um, are, are filter feeders who will eat just a huge amount of plant matter that other fish species will consume. And we're worried about grass carp because they will essentially devour a lot of wetlands because they are very, very good aquatic plant feeders. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of reasons to be fearful and a lot of reasons to be vigilant. But so far, most of the fish, the Asian carp that we have found in the Great Lakes um, have either been hatchery-born that have been released somehow, uh, or they have been what we believe to be one-offs because our routine monitoring that we're doing is not seeing um, substantial increases in them, and we're not really finding them in the places where we believe they would be if they were here. So we're, we're doing it. It's just whether we as a society in Canada and the United States are going to have the appetite to continue paying what it's going to cost to be able to keep these populations down in perpetuity. We're doing it with lamprey, but do we have the stomach to continue doing this indefinitely for Asian carp? Andrew, great to talk to you again. Thank you for your time again today. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on. This is Andrew Reeves, and his book is Overrun, Dispatches from the Asian Carp Crisis.